Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Mario Mancuso, a senior fellow at the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale. Mr. Mancuso is a national security and foreign affairs executive who has served in a variety of leadership roles in the United States government, including as Undersecretary of Commerce for Industry and Security and Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Combating Terrorism. Currently, he is a corporate partner and chair of the International Trade and Investment Practice at Freed, Frank, Harris, Shriver, and Jacobson. His particular area of focus is the relationship between U.S. national security and globalization. At Yale, he teaches a seminar on U.S. strategy and statecraft in the emerging security environment, and that is what we will discuss with him today. Welcome, Mr. Mancuso. No, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So, you have done so many things. What brings you to Yale? First, you know, um, Yale is just an amazing community. I, I had an opportunity to come to Yale two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, President Levin had a conversation with me, and I remember working with President Levin while I was still at the Department of Commerce. And, uh, you know, Yale being a tremendous learning community, a premier research university, mm -hmm. a focus on really teaching, and really a focus on being engaged in the world, both as a scholarly community and bringing the world to the campus, was just, um, just a, an irresistible opportunity. And I'm actually, you know, it's a great privilege to be here. Okay. So you are teaching a seminar here um, for undergraduates or graduates? This semester is, is uh, seniors. Okay. And tell us a bit about what you're doing with the students and, and how you're bringing your expertise to the classroom. Sure. Well, this uh, particular semester I'm co-teaching with Sean Smith and we're teaching a course on economic sanctions. Mm -hmm. And we're actually producing a capstone project for the Department of the Treasury. We're looking at two sanctions programs, the Libya sanctions programs and the Burma sanctions program. Those were areas, rather economic sanctions is an area of interest for me because I, I actually was involved in it when I was uh, uh, an official in the previous administration. Mm -hmm. And so during class, we, we bring to bear the intellects of tremendous students and seniors. Mm -hmm. uh, but we also bring to bear what I like to think is our practical experience in terms of what policymakers think about when they think about crafting economic sanctions programs. Mm -hmm. And so it's a fantastic course. We're really at the end of it now. And the students are producing, I think, a great piece of work. Okay. What are some of the things you think about when you are crafting economic sanctions? Well, we think of what the policy objectives are. I mean, she's mm -hmm. going down to first principles. Why would the United States, and for what purpose would it seek to impose an economic sanctions regime against a given country? Mm -hmm. And how might a sanctions regime uh, support that policy objective? It, sometimes it simply doesn't. Sometimes it can. And sometimes the environment is such that uh, sanctions, while maybe not the most uh, efficacious policy tool, mm -hmm. Are really, are really the best of uh, the remaining alternatives. Okay. Can you talk um, about any of the sanctions you're working on for Burma or Libya at this point or no? Uh, we can talk a little bit about them, okay. and I'd be happy to. Um, what, what the students are doing is they're looking at these sanctions programs, these very different sanctions programs, and looking at them in comparative perspective. What were, A, what were their policy objectives? And they're slightly different in both cases. Did they work? And if they did, why? If they didn't, to the extent they didn't, why didn't they work? And um, in a couple of surprising conclusions mm -hmm. uh, come about. I don't want to steal their thunder, so I won't go into all of them. Uh, but effectively, I think, I think the students have come to a position 
and realizing that when policymakers think about economic sanctions, they just simply can't assume the primacy of the American economic system and the international system. That tools are both more difficult and more possible for policymakers, and they have to think in a nuanced way as to what their objective is and whether or not a particular sanctions programs will work. Mm -hmm. It used to be, I think, somewhat reflexive uh, for U.S. policymakers to think that sanctions could be the the uh, you know the sort of the magic bullet, um, and that's clearly not the case. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, sanctions can be helpful. And I think history teaches us that when applied thoughtfully, they can be helpful mm -hmm. in, in achieving policy objectives. Can you speak to anything from your background in terms of an example of that? I actually think, I actually think the Burma sanctions programs, uh, uh, the U.S. sanctions program, uh, has been at least thus far, I believe, moderately successful. Now, there's some academic debate about whether that's true. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, uh, I mean, there are you know, differing views on that. But I think it's undeniable that Burma's relatively recent political opening has had something to do with U.S. sanctions. Now, mm -hmm. whether it, that had more to do with it, uh, whether sanctions had more to do with it than Burma's own economic mismanagement, I mm -hmm. think that's an open question. I think that's essentially unknowable. But I think, um, I think at least to me, without U.S. pressure, mm -hmm. um, I, I think Burma would be in a very different place today. Um, and so I think, I think U.S. policy over the course of a number of administrations. It's been clumsy at times. I think it's gotten better. And I, w I think uh, uh, President Obama and his administration should be commended for uh, a pretty differentiated approach with the regime. I think it's, I think it's been about as successful as a sanctions program can be. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, these are pretty blunt instruments. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a good case. Okay. Let's talk about your background a little bit. Um, you spent some time in the military and, of course, the government. Um, let's talk about sure. the expertise you're bringing to the classroom. You know, I, um, I tend not to emphasize expertise because in a place like Yale, it's always a dangerous thing to mm -hmm. do. Um, but I do think I bring some unique experiences. Of course. And uh, I was a military officer. I was ROTC. I served in the military, left the military, stayed in the reserves, went to law school, and then had an opportunity to uh, serve in appointed uh, government positions mm -hmm. where I brought to bear my own experience as an officer and, and, and a real interest and passion for national security and international affairs with my experience in the private sector. Mm -hmm. um, that culminated, uh, in the, I think, uh, with a number of different positions in the second term of President George W. Bush's administration. So I served from 2005 to 2009 in a number of different roles. And, you know, it was a remarkable time, and I think some of the themes that became emergent then, i.e., this nexus between globalization and national security, mm -hmm. how has the U.S. security profile changed, what constraints does, does U.S. statecraft have, what opportunities does U.S. statecraft mm -hmm. have in light of all of these changes, so what, incredibly what are appealing. Some of, what are some of the opportunities? Well, I think... I think some of the opportunities are, frankly, it forces us. I mean, the world looks very different. I mean, this is cliche by now, but 20 years ago, the world was a different place. Mm -hmm. The U.S. was, uh, I think, universally hailed as a single superpower. And I think we had assumed that we could, we, the United States, could do what it wanted on the international scene. I, effectively, I, clearly that's not true today. And I think uh, a good example of that is, for example, the Asia-Pacific region. I mean, the United States is still the world's only effectively superpower. There is a, at least one near-peer competitor. But if you were to just take out the Pacific 
and look at it, it's probably the only part of the world that I think today is effectively multipolar, not in a military sense. Mm -hmm. There the United States has uh, singular advantages, but in an economic sense, in a cultural sense, where the U.S. really has to, in many respects, struggle uh, to maintain vibrant relationships with its, with its allies, to maintain healthy and constructive relationships um, with the Chinese. And I think what, what the changes has forced us to do is, frankly, to be better, mm -hmm. to be more nuanced in how we think about the U.S. conducts diplomacy, how it conducts international affairs, how it maintains relationships. For a long time, it was enough to have a highly developed military uh, instrument of state power mm -hmm. and terrific diplomats. But now we're forced to basically have everything in between. We're forced to have those two bookends, but we're forced to develop tools everywhere in between those. And by the way, sanctions is a tool that falls neatly between those two bookends. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about a new taxonomy for statecraft, I think globalization has forced us to do that, and we're still learning. Mm -hmm. There is so much going on in the world now, um, <clears throat> and I'm wondering what your thoughts are in terms of the greatest challenges. You know, we have um, the conflict in Syria going on, for instance, um, the Middle East issues, Mm -hmm. um, you know, how, in, in teaching the students to um, work on these problems, what are some of the, um, the, of the things that you talk about? You know, it's interesting. I think, they're, frankly, the world is filled with problems. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot to talk about. Yes. Um, I don't know if the, if the sort of the bright, shiny objects of the news are the most important U.S. challenges. Mm -hmm. Speaking as a former U.S. policymaker, they're very important. We should care about them. We should be attuned to them. But we can easily confuse what's loudest with what's most important. What's most important? Um, I think probably the thing that we, we need to really think about is our role in the Pacific, Pacific and how do we midwife uh, a truly constructive and balanced relationship with China. That is critically important in my view. Mm -hmm. A near-term problem that we need to address uh, is the problem of Iran. I think what is now, I think, the Arab winter, but what was once the Arab spring, mm -hmm. um, that's a concern for the United States. And our role in the region and the importance of that region is something we should be mindful of. But I think the, the probably the most important long-term challenge is how to have a constructive role with China. Mm -hmm. And finding our way there um, is, I think, what should uh, really keep us up. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, no, no. thoughts. <laughs> no, I, I think that, um, I, think, I think one of the striking things about China and one of the striking things about the U.S.-China relationship that is unlike any other superpower relationship that we've had in our mm -hmm. past is the following. During the Cold War, the Soviet Union was clearly a military competitor, but it was never really an economic competitor. In the 80s, Japan was an economic competitor, but mm -hmm. it was not a military competitor. In fact, it was an ally. China is both at the same time an economic challenger and a strategic competitor. Mm -hmm. And so that has, in many respects, flummoxed U.S. policymakers. But it's, it's our urgent task. It's a critical relationship. It will, uh, it will uh, shape the international system mm -hmm. for a long time. And now that China has a new leader, do you think things will possibly improve with China, get a little easier, or perhaps more difficult? Or is it too early to tell? Yeah, I think times of change are always uh, times of danger and great opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think it's incumbent at times of transition to seize the momentum. 
and to try to establish good practices early. Mm -hmm. uh, for that, I think the United States should really focus on Asia. President Obama has announced a pivot. We are positioning more forces. They're relatively modest in number. But, but quite apart from our military footprint, which is, in my view, not the most important uh, piece to this puzzle, in mm -hmm. Asia at least, is our economic relationships. Are we speaking to our allies in the region? Are we engaged in a thoughtful way? If we were to open up the sort of U.S. government's outlook calendar, mm -hmm. where are we spending our time? The, you know, does the time we spend and where we spend that time, does it match up with what we think our strategic priorities are? Mm -hmm. I think Asia is a strategic priority. Right. And what about your policy interests? Let's talk about that a little bit. Does China play into that too? It does. It does. Uh, principally, uh, both military and economics and trade mm -hmm. and, uh, and how in my private sector role mm -hmm. it also comes up, you know, Chinese investment in the United States. How does the U.S. government view that? Mm -hmm. How does the U.S. government regulate that for national security purposes? One of my roles when I was at Commerce was to participate on, on what's called the CFIUS Committee, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United mm -hmm. States, which has been in, in the news of late, which is the U.S. government's body that reviews foreign direct investment when there's a national security overlay to it. Um, that's critical. And so with respect to China, how various economic issues, whether it's the currency, whether it's foreign direct investment, whether it's technology trade, how those uh, both, you know, how they reveal national security stresses in the relationship. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by that. I think it's important. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what, I, that's what I'm involved in. Um, does China own a good portion of the United States, as the rumor has it? You I know, know Hawaii it, is a, a good, big concern. You know, it, it is. First, it's, uh, you know, China is invested in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, China is invested in, in different parts of the world. Uh, and let's not forget, it's actually affirmative U.S. policy to encourage foreign direct investment. Mm -hmm. We need foreign direct investment. Our savings rate hasn't been as high as it, it historically has been. We need it for economic purposes. The question is, is how do we get the benefits of foreign direct investment with mitigating any national security downsides? Mm -hmm. I think the U.S. is, is uh, like other countries, by the way, struggling with how do sovereign investors, how do, not private investors, but how do investors who are affiliated with a government, a country, um, how do they make investment decisions? Are they making investment decisions on purely econo on an economics basis, which of course should not be problematic, because economics is not zero sum. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, um, is there a strategic uh, intent behind those investments that might be inconsistent with security interests? Mm -hmm. And that's a hard you know, we need to develop a finer sift in government for figuring out which transactions mm -hmm. are problematic and which are not. I was going to ask you that. How do you track that? Well, you know, <laughs> uh, the, the, the Committee on Foreign Investment actually has a process, and mm -hmm. it's mostly transaction-focused. And on any given transaction, I think it's fairly straightforward. The intelligence community plays an important role, and there are a number of policy interests. For example, if a given transaction uh, you know, raises the prospect of sensitive U.S. technology going to a foreign acquirer. Well, mm -hmm. that could be problematic. If a given transaction uh, threatens to interrupt the supply of a critical good that a U.S. business that is the subject of the transaction mm -hmm. supplies to the U.S. government, that would be an area where the U.S. would con be concerned about. And similarly, if a, tra if a given transaction could be the basis for a means of intrusion into the United mm -hmm. States uh, through networks, for example, that would also be an, a basis. 
But those are micro factors. But in many respects, defining risk in that setting is, I think, the bigger challenge. Because it depends on what you mean by risk. Is it transaction risk, i.e. what I've just described to you, or is it systemic risk? Mm -hmm. The systemic risk, uh, the larger risk is, well, what happens if you have a restrictive investment regime that discourages foreign investment in the United States? And that investment goes, goes to places in the world outside the United mm -hmm. States, places including that might become strategic competitors sure. to the United States. And so uh, it's how you define the risks, which risks are most important, mm -hmm. how do you mitigate them, and you can't do everything everywhere all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the, the U.S. process is currently focused on the transaction risk. Um, and I think it, it has done that fairly well, at mm -hmm. least in the last two or three years. Um, and I think it will get better at doing that. Okay. But it's been clumsy in the past at times. Mm -hmm. Well, if there was one thing you would like your students to take away from your class, what would it be? You know, I'd love for them to continue to be just engaged in learning about mm -hmm. the world. Uh, the world is an amazing place. And being at a place like Yale gives you tremendous opportunities. And, and to take full advantage of that. Mm -hmm. And to be thoughtful, uh, to be intellectually assertive, and to really try to make a difference. I mean, I would want them to always to remember the class as a class that, that made them care, made them think, and made them more and more engaged. Very good. Thank you so much for being oh. here with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. For more information about Mr. Mancuso, please visit our website at yale.edu slash Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.